Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Nicole Monique Bidi. She talked about the environment where she grew up in and how she navigated challenging times. She also discussed how she dealt with the grief when her adoptive mother passed away when she was 17 and dealing with the feeling of loss and abandonment for a second time. She shared her journey into finding a birth family and the reunion. We also discussed the importance of well-being and resting. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I am Crystal Pellicure, your host. And today I'm joined by Nicole Monique Beat, and I'm really excited to have another conversation with another adoptee. And Nicole Monique Beat is a 30-year-old Black domestic transracial adoptee who was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and grew up in Newport, Rhode Island. Nicole was raised by a single white adoptive mother who passed in 2010. Finding support on the social media allowed Nicole to share grief, shame, anger, and growth for the first time. A reunion with her birth family is difficult to navigate, but Nicole now prioritizes rest, therapy, physical health, and strong friendships as she found peace in her adoption and life journey. Welcome, Nicole. How are you today? Good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I am too. Thank you so much for joining me. And as I always ask my guests at the beginning of the podcast, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about your adoption journey. Yeah, um, so I am a Black woman, 30 years old, and I was adopted from Boston, Massachusetts, um, was with my birth mom for a few days, then went into foster care for a month and then was adopted by my white adoptive mother, who also grew up in Boston. Um, then we moved to Newport, Rhode Island, which is a beach town, very small. I grew up there, and then for high school, went to boarding school, which was interesting in itself. Um, went to Northeastern University in Boston, and I've moved around from Providence, Rhode Island, to Boston, to California. And now I'm here applying for hopefully my PhD in psychology next fall, and just 
ready to share my journey. Amazing. And I, I love Boston. I spend a few weeks in Boston and I really like it there. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you, you were raised by a white single mother and in a not so diverse environment. How was that for you growing up, that environment? Yeah, so I would say where I live, it was a white but um, lower class neighborhood. In Newport, Rhode Island, there's very small sections where people of color and people of lower economic social status live. So I would be enrolled in daycare and after school care with other people of color. And I also went to school and it was a pretty diverse town because I was in kind of the melting section of Newport. But I definitely had trouble kind of fitting in. I think this is often heard, but not white enough, not black enough. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to learn culture through the black people that I was around. But I still got pushback because they saw that I wasn't culturally black. And that creates some resistance. I did different events after school, like swimming, dancing. My mom even enrolled me in Irish step dancing. Imagine a black girl doing that. I did it. And then, you know, growing up until high school, when I went to a really elite Catholic boarding school, I really wasn't the only Black person anywhere until I got to that place. And that school, you know, had international students, but had very few Black middle class or lower students attending. And then as I went through college, a very white world for me. There was a Black Student Association, and it just, it didn't click with me. So I did a lot of work um, in finding my Blackness and where that can be accepted um, and kind of letting go of the places that I don't. And now I live right outside of Boston, and I do a couple of part-time jobs as well as group facilitate for a depression group. And I enjoy time with friends now, but it's definitely been a journey. And what has helped you, uh, you would say, to get to where you are today, to get through that difficult journey? I think, number one, having time to process. I think, you know, when you're young, it's a very intense time. Even when you're not an adoptee, there's a lot of social pressures. You're learning about yourself. And, you know, you really just have to take the time to process that anger, to even find out answers that may have been kept from you. I was part of a closed adoption. So my mom had some very basic paperwork that I was able to access when I was about 23. But it was really a journey of discovering other adoptees online, resonating with their anger, growth, and confusion, and really realizing, okay, I have some legitimacy here. This is not just me alone. I'm not weird. I'm not the only one. And really reaching out. Now I have a couple of Black transracial adoptee friends, and that's been really helpful. But I think also being in therapy, taking whatever medications, and really prioritizing my own rest, which looks different from a lot of um, other people who haven't been adopted. 
Yes, and I, I think in the um, in in your bio we touched about grief, shame, anger, but you also have to deal with your adoptive mother passing away. So there's a, an extra grief you had to deal with. So that you've been separated from your birth family, and then now you're also separated from this woman who's been taking care of you. How does it manifest in 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 your own identity, having to go through that double grief? Oh, it's heavy. Just as you're describing it, hearing somebody else describe it, I think it hits home a little more about how defining that was for me. I work really hard in creating an identity separate from trauma. But, you know, me and my mom had a very probably codependent, close relationship. And when she actually passed, I was in boarding school. So she was diagnosed um, and then three months later passed. I only got to see her a couple of times because I was at school most of the time. So there was really no process for grief. I went from seeing this strong woman lawyer to seeing someone who couldn't stay on the phone or couldn't stay awake because of the treatments and the disease taking over her body. And I remember that funeral, I was just I was just sort of numb. I don't think the grief really hit me until a couple of years later in college. Because when my mom had passed, it was my junior year of high school, that's when you apply to colleges. You know, everyone checks in with you about if you're okay in the beginning of that process. It's kind of a little after where you start seeing how different your life is now that you don't have this person, that you really start to get angry and grieve. And I definitely shut down. I was looking for affirmations from people that I would normally get from my mother. I suddenly felt like I kind of knew what I was doing, but didn't have direction. Um, and it was hard not to belong to anyone, quite honestly. I took on the role as daughter and all of a sudden that's taken away from me. And also, you know, my mom's adoptive family has their own issues or sorry, her natural family has their own issues. And the relationships with them fell apart just as I lost my mother as well. So, you know, it's hard. I lost my mom when I was 17 and now I'm 30. I don't have that woman to go to, to ask about dating, to ask about adult life, to get my, to know my mother as a person. So I'm grieving as I'm seeing my friends go through different relationship growths with their mother. And I definitely think it adds to the attachment issues and feeling abandoned because Ray, I was left. It wasn't her choice and she really hung on for as long as she could but yeah, I had to come to terms with now I am alone. I'm an orphan. What does that mean? Yeah. And I, I say it's double grief, but it is double abandonment again, because actually, although, you know, she didn't plan to abandon you, I suppose you would have triggered that abandonment issue from your previous story. So yeah, it's, it's very heavy and I am really sorry for your loss. And uh, I'm glad you found, you know, some support around and you also mentioned when I was reading the bio that you've reunited with your birth family. How did you find them? Because it was a closed adoption. So like I mentioned before, I did have some basic paperwork that said why my mom um, had chosen to give me up for adoption. 
It also listed her name at the time, but I found out later that it was actually off by a couple of letters. But I knew knew the first and last name, and I knew Boston, Massachusetts was where I was adopted from. So I decided once I got that paperwork, probably in 2017 or 18, um, to just Google her. And I also decided to do 23andMe and Ancestry DNA at the same time to see what I could find. And when I Googled her, her name popped up on LinkedIn right away, which is crazy. Um, and it was funny. I wasn't sure if it was her because it didn't have her picture in the profile, but she was studying behavioral psychology for her master's. And that's something that I've studied as well. So it was very interesting. I continued to Google and then suddenly I was on this background search website and a little pop-up message came and said, pay $1 to get this person's cell phone number. So I took a risk. It could have been a scam, but I did it. Um, And I had a close friend, Sarah, who had gone through some sort of reunion with her father and that side of the family too. And she suggested, how about she makes the first call? So I gave my friend her number and about five minutes later, I get a call back from my friend and her voice is just in a way that I've never heard it. And she said, I spoke to your mother and she wants you to call her. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I did call her and she put me on speakerphone. She said, Monique, because Monique was the name I was given at birth still my middle name. And I hear in the background, there's another one of us. Apparently, one of my half siblings was in the car with her and they weren't told that I existed. Um, They weren't told I was put up for adoption. And my mother told me in that conversation that she tried to never change her name and stay in the area with hopes that I would find her. So that was the beginning. And I think I felt wary of her because I knew there was some abuse in the in the past um, with my father that she mentioned in the paperwork. I also knew there was substance abuse, and I didn't really know what to think of that. I spent some time on the phone with her asking about some basic health questions and some basics about my dad, but she never really gave me a straight answer. And the lack of transparency kind of kept me away from her, particularly. I told myself, in time, that will happen. But in the meantime, I was able to meet one of my half-siblings, who's my oldest brother, who was actually mentioned in my paperwork. He was living in New York at the time, and I met him and his girlfriend. It was very kind of light and a quick trip, but it was good to meet someone um, and to feel like I had like that male role model, an older person that really knew more about my mother than I did. And through that, I learned that my three other half siblings ended up going through foster care and adoption due to her lack of care for them. So that was hard to hear. And then I also met another one of my half sisters. It was okay. Um, It ended a little awkwardly and we don't really talk. And there's one more, there's one more sibling who's younger. And we sometimes talk about meeting up, but 
I know her life is tumultuous too, and she's younger. So, you know, I'm taking my time, but unfortunately my birth mom passed before I could meet her. Um, and I got that message from a half sibling. So it was like, okay, I'm adopted. Then I lost my adoptive mother. Then I lost my natural mother. So, you know, I don't, I'm not really in contact with them at this time, but I'm able to contact them via social media. And that's kind of where I'm comfortable with it right now. Wow, I can't, I can't even stop to imagine that journey because it's you're getting something and you lose it again. And that loss is just recurrent in your life. I mean, in the news, it seems to be like a pattern. So I couldn't even imagine how one person has to go through so many losses in their life. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, my head is still trying to process that. <laughs> I can see, I can see. And to be honest, that's a lot of the time how my mind is. Sometimes I'm just caught in these webs of rumination because there's so many things as far as intimate relationships, um, friendships, and even work environments that are related to this repeated loss. Um, and really turns into imposter syndrome for me, um, feeling like, what do I have to do to make you not leave me? That's not what I feel, you know, consciously, but subconsciously, that's always, I'm always working from a level of abandonment. Yeah. And the other side of that is the codependency you mentioned earlier, right. because it just, when you find someone, you just want to cling into them. But at the same time, you also have the fear that they might leave you. <laughs> so, and that's, I have known that in my own personal relationship for a long time, I, I you know, I you you between those two emotions of wanting to be well it wasn't consciously wanting but being codependent to someone but at the same time having this huge fear of being abandoned again and being rejected that has been very recurring especially around my in my 20s that was very recurring pattern in my life so yeah it's not easy to navigate and you have to do a lot of deep diving into your own self to to try to find out what is actually good for me and what is not. But you have done that, you know, you're <laughs> taking that step already. So that's, that's amazing. So you, you're now focusing on your resting and uh, prioritizing on your well-being. Is there anything that has been really, you would say, it's been, I know I asked you earlier how you navigate your journey but now you are at the point where you are what is the things apart from rest that you mentioned what is one thing that's really keeping you grounded and help you move forward slowly into I mean you're going to be starting a PhD that is so a big <laughs> endeavor so what do you also use for your own well-being at the moment apart from rest yeah so actually I this year, I made a really big decision um, to quit my corporate and nonprofit job and really take the time to work a part-time job and dedicate the rest of the time to therapy, resting, and taking care of my nutrition and getting my energy levels up. So I make sure I walk an hour a day. Um, I make sure that I'm connected to the community. I'm checking out a church right now, <laughs> which there's religious trauma as well. But I I love I love groups of people where the values are good. 
And I really wanted to take this time off to start EMDR therapy. And it's complex, but I think I'm going to feel weight lifted. I've all only done one session so far, and I feel a lot more in control, a lot lighter. And then at the end of the week, I meet with another talk therapist who's in the same collective as my EMDR therapy, and we do some processing. And what's really important to me is even though I've been in th traditional therapy for 13 years, EMDR therapy is more about the brain and bilateral stimulation and increasing your resiliency. But with that comes the need for rest and the possibility for other behaviors and other memories to come up. So a big thing I was told was when you're doing EMDR, give that space to rest. So I also was diagnosed with bipolar one in 2020. And that really answered a lot of the questions that I had in therapy. I'm mostly depressive, but I would have phases where I'd just be, you know, dating, meal prepping, working out, doing well at my job. And then I'd have periods where I just wasn't getting out of bed, period. And so really getting on medication for that, but also having a different lens of sometimes I'm going to need more rest. Sometimes I'll have more energy and how to become more stable, have good boundaries, but also know how to communicate what I need has been very important. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think it's an important point for many adoptees that our mental health is affected by that journey we've been through. That is a problem because not everybody can afford the treatment that they need. So a lot of people are still struggling. They might not have the means to be able to, to go into a part-time job. So I'm really, I'm really glad that you, you've been able to give yourself that gift take some time off for yourself and really prioritizing you because I think it's really important that we put ourselves first because nobody teaches that at <laughs> any time that this is no. what we need to do. We have to put ourselves as number one. You know, we, we we just navigate this journey thinking like there's something wrong with us, but nobody say, oh, you need to take rest, you need to, to go into therapy. This is what will be useful for you. We just have to work it out ourselves as we go along. So I'm really inspired by your journey that you take that time and give yourself permission that it's okay to rest. It's okay to put myself first. And I think that will inspire a lot of people, a lot of adoptee out there. So thank you for sharing that. And tell us a little bit more about your PhD. So you're thinking about doing a PhD. So so, yeah. yeah, I studied psychology and complex PTSD um, in undergrad, knowing that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I acted as a family therapist. I acted as a behavioral therapist. I also was a victim advocate for people with criminal court trials or elder affairs. I worked for the attorney general's office and all of that was great. But I think I reached the maximum amount of money you can make with a bachelor level psychology degree. So I then focused on nonprofits. But then really in the last year, I feel like I, I've climbed the ladder to the point where I feel comfortable that I could do more of that. But there's still a missing piece. And that's 
doing what I want and being able to be taken seriously about it. I think, you know, having my outlet on social media for adoption and complex trauma is great, but I want to be able to create a therapy collective where there's more somatic movement, where there is re-experiencing groups with people like you and not like you and with greater minds. I think looking for therapy as an adoptee is difficult. Finding a Black adoptee is hard enough. And then finding a someone who understands transracial adoption through lived experience is impossible. <laughs> so, you know, I'm hoping to go back to school. It's a five-year program with a lot of placements, and I'm hoping that works out. I only applied to one school, keeping my fingers crossed for a scholarship because finances are rough. And if that doesn't work, then I'm applying to three more PhD programs for next year. So it's going to happen I'm determined for it to happen, but, you know, I, I have to let go of control a little bit. Yeah, that's amazing. And well done for taking that step, because like you say, it's, it's almost impossible to try to find a black therapist who understands adoption trauma. So we need more. We need definitely more adoptees to step up in that space and provide those services because I hear it all the time from adoptees that trying. I've not found one that can reflect my own values and my personal journey and can understand me. So we need people who can see and hear us as we are moving through that journey. So I I keep my finger crossed and I'll be checking up later on. <laughs> To see where you are, uh, definitely I would love to to see for that journey. And who knows, you know, someone might be hearing this podcast and something might happen. So let's keep positive. It's going to happen, like you said. Yeah, I definitely need the, the thoughts and prayers, the manifestations. So putting it out there makes it a little more real. Yeah, and I, I will invite all the audience to pray with you for it to happen quicker than later. <laughs> so yeah, we, we are with you <laughs> with that. Okay, so I always hand the podcast asking my guests one final question, which is if you had to give your younger self or a young adoptee an advice, what would you tell yourself or this young adoptee? So I would tell other adoptees as well as myself to give it time. And what I mean by that is you need time to explore your emotions, time to find people who value and see you, time to heal using whatever modalities work for you. I'd like them to know that if you're in pain right now, the emotions will move through you eventually, but you need to keep going to reap those benefits. And while you wait, reach out to adoptees on social media and find other like-minded people. For example, those who may have come from an untraditional family background or mixed heritage, if you can't find an adoptee. And most importantly, use the time to rest. It's taken me 30 years to get to a point where I feel safe within my support systems and it took a while to gather my people and unpack my emotional trauma responses. Don't give up on healing and get creative. Wow, that's that is a, a really beautiful and really 
it's quite a rich advice and yeah thank you so much for that it's really useful yeah especially i mean the bit i really take is about resting i know it sounds like very small but over the years i have really discovered the the benefit of resting is just so so important yeah it's not and it's hard to do because we are so conditioned to just go 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 so taking time to rest and do nothing <laughs> is is uh, is difficult then it's not doing nothing sometimes it's just you know reconnecting with the little thing that you used to like as a as a child for example so that yeah really good advice thank you so much and thank you so much Nicole for your time uh, sharing your story with us and really good luck for the the next few years with the PhD and do stay in contact with us before I go can you tell our audience where they can find you if they want to follow you yes so getting my phone out here the best place to follow me is either LinkedIn. You can search my name, Nicole Monique Beattie. That's B as in boy, E, E, D as in dog, E. Um, or you can follow me on my therapy and adopt the Instagram. I'm called the Therapeutic Babe of Adoption. And my handle is therapeutic spelled in a different way. So it's T-H-E-R. A-P-U-T-I-C underscore babe. So therapeutic babe. So that's the best place to follow me. Amazing. And um, you will also find all these details in the show notes. So yes, do follow Nicole. And um, if you need any therapeutic side of advice, I'm sure she can also direct you in the right place. So thank you so much, Nicole, for your time. I really appreciate you. Have a great day. Thank you. This is Christelle Pellecure, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and until next time, goodbye.